Um, So we're going to read James chapter 4, verses 1 down to 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you, so, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It's very good to see you. Let me add my welcome to to Jonathan's. If we haven't met before, my name's uh, Johnny. I'm part of the leadership uh, team here. And it is great to have you with us this evening on a very sunny uh, summer's evening. And we've had pretty much all seasons today. That's a typical Aberdeen summer's day. Uh, Rain and uh, just shy of snow. um, But it is lovely and sunny together. And it is good to to, to be with one another this evening. We're going to spend, as Jonathan's mentioned, a few minutes thinking about James chapter 4. Um, which has been read for us. Again, it would be helpful to me and I trust to you to have that open in front of you over the course of the next few minutes um, as we think about it together. Um, But before we do that, let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. James writes, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Our God and Father, we ask very simply that you would please help us over the coming minutes to draw near to you in the quiet of our own hearts and ask that as we do so that you would please draw near to us be at work by your Holy Spirit we pray and we ask these things for our joy and for your glory and do so in Jesus name Amen Amen Now um, the, the big theme of our passage this evening is that of conflict, which is, is part of everyday life for many of us, I would guess. And it, just as there can be many different kinds of conflict, it, conflict can have lots of different causes, it, some of which can be quite obvious. It, think of the student flat, for example, where one flatmate always seems to, to stock the fridge and the cupboards, whilst the other's only contribution is to empty said fridge and cupboards and the result is conflict or of the friendship group as one friend's harsh word to another 
splits a group down the middle and everyone takes sides. The result? Conflict. Conflict can come about for many different reasons. Sometimes, though, the reason for conflict isn't obvious from first glance. I read this week of the situation that happened a number of years ago in a parliament in South America, for example. A congressman named Romelo Leon tried to grab and to assault another congressman, which apparently isn't all that uncommon in the Peruvian parliament. It makes our parliaments look fairly tame by comparison. And on the face of it, the disagreement was over government policy. That's what everyone thought was going on. But the real reason, the reason behind the, the public fist fight was that Leon had been accused of siphoning money into a Swiss bank account. And so you see, whilst the dispute was a very public one, well, behind the fist fight, the very public fist fight, was a hidden motivator. And the same can often be said, says James, of conflicts among Christians. It might not be a surprise to many of us that conflict can be a feature amongst groups of Christians, amongst local churches even, whether groups of people disagree with one another or whether there are disagreements between two different individual Christians. And again, the, the, the reasons for those disputes can be myriad. Uh, they can be about, about music, about leadership, about decision-making in the church, about service styles, about the leadership of, of particular ministries. Christians can find as many reasons to fall out as there are Christians. In fact, What's interesting in our passage this evening, though, is that James is going to pull back the curtain on conflicts in local churches to show that behind what are often quite public disputes is sometimes a much more deep-rooted war. A war not going on out there, but going on in here. And we'll think about that under our first heading this evening. Behind your public dispute lies a private war, verses 1 to 3. Now, uh, James clearly does have a conflict in his mind as, as we move into chapter 4. I wonder if you spotted that as, as uh, Jonathan read for us a few moments ago. Verse 1, read that with me again if you would. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? There's clearly a problem within the Christians to whom James was writing with quarreling, with fighting. And that might be something with which you have personal experience. You might have witnessed quarreling in a local church, quarreling between Christians over all sorts of different things. And very sadly, Christians can actually be known as being particularly quarrelsome people. A friend of mine used to play football in a church's football league, a league where all of the teams were, were comprised of people with at least some connection to a gospel church. My friend played a lot of football in a lot of different leagues in his time, but said he'd never played in such a physically aggressive league in all his life. And in fact, he told me about a time when a game came to an end only because police showed and they came to break up what had turned into a mass brawl. Some of us might have experienced similar things on a football field. Others might not have experienced it quite so physically, but might well have experienced conflict in a ministry group meeting, or in a Bible study, or in a Christian union, or amongst a group of, of Christian friends, 
where Christians just can't seem to get on, always seem to be at one another's throats. And yet behind those even very public disputes, says James, is that deeper conflict, not between people, but within people. Just notice that with me. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The quarrels among you, says James, are triggered by warring within you. Now, the kind of disputes James was addressing was motivated by verse 1, the passions of the parties involved. And that word passions isn't necessarily a negative one when used on its own. But James then explains what those warring passions are. Verse 2, it is desiring something and not having it. It's coveting something and not getting it. You see, the root cause of these disputes and of the internal warring, it's self-service. People wanting something for themselves and trampling on other Christians who are getting in the way. Now, it is important, I think, to be clear that not all conflicts are created equal. And that conflict itself isn't necessarily to be avoided. I think I mentioned a few Sunday mornings ago, a friend of mine who led a church through a split over what the Bible teaches about human rebellion and sin against God. He and and others who were with him were sticking with the apostles' teaching, and the others who were leaving wanted to, to sort of shift the goalposts on what the Bible says. And the motivator in that instance for that dispute, well, for my friend at least, it wasn't self advancement. It was actually a very costly thing to stick with Jesus in that situation. Conflict was the right course of action rather than compromise. So, you see, the problem here isn't conflict in and of itself. But the people to whom James is writing aren't concerned about matters of theological integrity. They're concerned with matters of personal advancement. And the context we've seen in James over the past few weeks gives some clues as to exactly what that advancement might well have looked like. It might well have involved securing a position of power or of prestige or of influence in a local church or amongst other Christians. It might even have involved the pursuit of financial gain by people's dealings within a local church. Other Christians seem to be getting in the way of those interests, and so much so, says James, that some Christians have taken to murdering other Christians to get their way. Now, for clarity, I'm not sure that people are physically murdering one another. I'd be surprised if James left it four chapters in before addressing it, if that really was the case. But in their hearts, that's just what they're doing. Cutting one another down in order to get ahead themselves. Now, there are some some workplaces, there are some industries where that is just how things tend to operate. People claim over one another to get what they want, to get to the top. Uh, James, though, isn't addressing a group of of, of media executives or a, a group of corporate bankers or corporate lawyers about how they're behaving in the office. He's talking to Christians about how they're behaving in a local church. And that's a really shocking thing, isn't it? Or is it? 
wonder if for some of us it isn't shocking at all. Maybe your experience, your very painful lived experience, has led you to expect this kind of behavior in a local church. I should say that this isn't actually an issue I've seen lots of within Hebron during the time I've been here. It's possible, of course, that it's happening and I'm not aware of it. But my experience has been of a great deal of of unity and of love and of care shown towards other people. And yet even then, the fact that James goes after not the outward dysfunction, not the, the, the sort of public fighting itself, but the inner conflict means that even if we aren't at one another's throats as a church family, and praise God for that, well, we might still be in James's firing line. Because even if I'm not overtly quarrelsome, well, it is worth reflecting on whether any of the root causes are, are, are there in my heart. Whether I am motivated by personal gain, even when it comes to my dealings with my brothers and sisters as a Christian. And the reason I think that that's particularly important is that James isn't necessarily warning about the consequences of this kind of fighting and quarreling. He could do that, couldn't he? He could say, don't you know how damaging it is to the reputation of the local church and ultimately to the God that church represents when you fight with each other as Christians? He could say, don't you know the damage you do to other Christians when you fight with one another, both of which would be legitimate points to make. But those aren't the reason James gives for avoiding this inner war, at least not here. You see, we see the war behind the war so far. Well, says James, there is, wait for it, a war behind the war, behind the war. By entertaining disputes with your brothers and sisters... You're actually pitting yourself against a much more formidable enemy. And we see that under our second heading this evening. By fighting against your brothers, you pit yourself against a more powerful opponent. Verses 4 and 5. Now, um, at the 28th of June, 1914... Uh, is seen as a pivotal moment in world history. If you aren't aware of what happened on that date, it's the date on which Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, was assassinated. Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, who'd backed that assassination in retaliation. And uh, at the outset, it looked like Austria-Hungary had sort of committed themselves to a localised conflict in southeast Europe. Uh, But it transpired it was anything but localised. Russia's support of Serbia brought Russia and then France into the conflict. Germany then declared war on Russia and France. And British fears of German domination in Europe brought Britain and its empire into the war too. And so what looked at the outset like one relatively small party picking a fight with another relatively small party... Well, it ended up turning into a much grander conflict than that. It ended up being what we now call the First World War. Austria-Hungary had really pitted themselves not just against Serbia, but against a much, much bigger enemy. And as we read on through James chapter 4, we see that the same can be said of the quarreling Christian. James has shown us that beneath their public conflict, there was a hidden internal war, 
But there is another conflict going on even beneath that one. Beneath their warring passions, says James, quarrelers are waging war with the creator God. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice there the conflict language, enmity with God. What does that mean? Well, antagonism, hostility, hatred. Notice how he ends it. You make yourself an enemy of God. You might think that your squabble with someone in a local church is no big deal, says James. It's just how things go when people spend time together, when they've got different interests. It's only to be expected they'll fall out from time to time. James is much less blasé about the whole thing. You're initiating a war, not just with your brother and sister, but with the creator, God. And that does raise the stakes somewhat, doesn't it? Now, to be clear, James isn't saying that if you're a quarreling Christian, that you're on the wrong side of the argument and that God is standing with the other person somehow, that they're on the right side of things. Because you see, it's quite possible that both parties to a dispute are in the wrong. Both are seeking their own interests and both are therefore pitting themselves against a much more powerful adversary than one another. Because by pursuing selfish gain, you set yourself against God. And that is a fairly terrifying image, isn't it? For the sniping comment behind another Christian's back. Or the quiet manoeuvring to try and oust someone from a particular friendship circle. It looks small fry. James says, it's anything but. Would we not think twice before tearing down a Christian brother or sister? Before clambering over them for our own advantage? If we knew that by doing so, we were setting ourselves against the creator of the universe... And actually, I wonder if you noticed that warfare isn't the only image James uses to convey how serious the issue is. Wars are brutal and are painful kinds of conflict. And yet there are few conflicts more painful than those which involve loved ones. The fault line through an entire family as they dispute the terms of a loved one's will. Or perhaps more painfully still, the conflict that erupts in a marriage as one spouse is found to have been unfaithful to another. Well, that's the image that James weaves into verses 4 and 5. I wonder if you spotted that. Verse 4, you adulterous people. I'll read on to verse 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously? Over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. See this self-service is such a big issue says James. Not only because we're setting ourselves against God. If that wasn't enough. But because we're two timing him. And he is a jealous God. Says James. Now jealousy is often a very ugly trait. When it appears in people. But the jealousy James is describing is anything but. God is jealous, says James, over the spirit he has caused 
to dwell in his people, by which I think he's talking about, or rather I should say by whom he's talking about, the Holy Spirit. God himself, who takes up residence in people who've trusted in Jesus, who helps us grow to be more and more like Jesus. James is saying that as you seek your own advancement in a local church, clamber over brothers and sisters to get there, well, in effect, you're two-timing God. The Spirit who lives within you, who enables you to be more like Jesus, who pricks your conscience about behavior dishonoring to him, well, we choose to ignore him. And instead, we listen to the inner voice, the old self, that wants what's best for me, no matter the cost. And that does make sense in the context of James as an entire letter, doesn't it? If you've been here for this series in the book of James, we've seen each week that the disease James is rooting out in this whole letter is spiritual double-mindedness. It's uh, Christians being caught between wholeheartedly following God on the one hand and serving ourselves and what makes life easiest for us on the other. And that can be a battle for Christians, can't it? As you feel on one hand the draw to take up a cross and follow Jesus, knowing that's the only safe place to stake your life. And yet on the other hand, the draw to share a juicy piece of gossip that will take another Christian down a peg or two. The attraction of pulling that other Christian apart behind their back, piece by piece. See, the disease in James is spiritual double-mindedness. And in chapter 4, the symptom of that disease, how we see it's happening on the outside, is quarreling. And so you see, as, as, as Christians argue, as they fight with their brothers and sisters in order to gain an advantage, well, we're two timing God, declaring war against him. And that, I'm sure you will agree, is dangerous, dangerous territory. And it should be, well, pretty sobering for each of us if we see signs of spiritual double-mindedness in ourselves, not least in how we treat our brothers and sisters. But not only does James diagnose the disease of double-mindedness, not even does he, as he does in chapter 4, highlight the symptoms of that disease, but he also prescribes a cure. And we'll see that under our final heading this evening. Humbly repentantly submit to God for he gives more grace now um, people often seem to get into a, a bit of a fankle when it comes to the letter of James it's often been said that, that, that James contradicts the rest of the Bible or the teaching of, of other authors in the New Testament people often pit the good news of, of God's free offer of grace from someone like Paul in letters like Romans against a letter like James Because James seems to want to make our faith all about what God has done for us. Eh, Sorry, not about what God has done for us, but about what we do for God. Now, we've seen, I think, in our time in James, that pitting James against Paul is a misrepresentation of both James and Paul. And the case in point, I think, is verses 6 to 12 of James chapter 4. Just read verse 6 again with me. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The answer to this kind of spiritual double-mindedness, says James, that the terms of peace, if you like, between us and the creator God, is submission. Rather than following yourself and serving your own interests, says James, submit yourself to God. Now, what will that look like in practice? Well, it will look like a couple of different things, I think. The first of which is resisting. Submission might sound like it's quite a, a, a passive thing, but it's anything but. James says it involves resisting, resisting the temptation, I think, to serve yourself. He says, verse 7, we are to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So you see, submitting to God isn't an entirely passive thing, far from it. It'll involve saying no to those passions that are warring within you. And that will cash out in our relationships with our brothers and sisters. As we no longer see each other as hurdles to getting our own way. But as we are, as brothers and sisters, bound together by the Lord Jesus. That's part of what submitting ourselves to God looks like, I think. It looks like resisting that which is anti-God. But alongside that, part of submitting ourselves to God involves humbly repenting for the times we don't do that. Verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sounds like a fairly downbeat verse or two, doesn't it? I suspect not many folks have chosen that as their life verse or um, have it on on, um, Christian calendars or, or posters around their home. We might even think that James has got things the wrong way round. Shouldn't we be turning our mourning to laughter if we're Christians? Isn't the good news of Jesus really good? Shouldn't we rejoice? Well, yes, absolutely it is good news. But as we get to rejoicing, it does make sense that so too we should be mournful. Imagine, for example, someone who's been caught in an adulterous relationship. It would be an odd thing, wouldn't it, if they were to feel nothing having been caught in that relationship, odder still if they were to rejoice in that adultery. It would be right that they should regret it, should feel mournful over that unfaithfulness. And even if their marriage is restored, well, before they can rejoice in that restoration, it's a good thing that they should feel the weight of of what's happened, of what they've done. And James, I think, is saying that the same is true of our spiritual adultery. That weeping and mourning and gloom is absolutely the right response to realizing that we've pitted ourselves against God. That we've opposed him by serving ourselves. That we've two-timed him by hating our brothers and sisters. And that's why I mentioned earlier that before we apply this passage to church family as a whole, I think, we are right to apply it to ourselves. As we reflect on our own hearts, the flashes of self-service that may well lurk in the shadows, the times we prioritize our own interests over those of our brothers and sisters, 
when we've seen people as being mere hurdles to getting our own way. We are right to weep over that. To mourn over that. To regret it deeply. That should cause us grief. But even as we mourn, we need not despair. There is a wonderful note of hope for all of us. No matter how double-minded we might have been as Christians, as we weep over our sin, as we submit ourselves to God, verse 6, he gives more grace. Isn't that a wonderful verse? If you remember anything into this coming week, remember those four words. He gives more grace. It is a wonderful promise that the God whom we have offended, against whom we've pitted ourselves, calls us to submit to him, to mourn over our rebellion against him, to ask for his mercy. And as we do so, he says, he gives more grace. Now, perhaps you're here this evening and wouldn't describe yourself as, as, as being a Christian. And if that is you, then you are most welcome. Let me just acknowledge that this might have sounded like a, a lot of housekeeping this evening, of Christians thinking about how we can better get our act together. But I do hope that it's at least intrigued you that Christians would want to get our house in order when it comes to quarreling and fighting. Because to look on the Christian church from afar, you might well think that infighting and that quarreling is, is just what Christians tend to be like. Perhaps you haven't looked on it from afar, in fact. Maybe you've seen others hurt by that kind of behavior before. Maybe you've been hurt yourself. And have it in your mind that you could never be a Christian if being a Christian looks like them. Well, if that is you, can I please just say, don't let our failures put you off. Self-service and infighting is not what God intends for his church. Hopefully you've seen that this evening. He longs for Christians to humbly, repentantly submit to him, to love one another more and more. And I would be so bold as to say he calls you to submit to him too. And to receive the grace which we do all so need. So rather than brushing him off because of what you might have witnessed or experienced amongst his people, can I encourage you to find out more about him? Listen to what he says about who he is, about who you are, and about how you can know him. It's the most important news you will ever hear, and it does demand a response. And if you are a clear Christian... This passage does have a, a sharp application to us too, I think. As I've mentioned before, this isn't something that I think is, is, is particularly obvious or evident amongst our church family here at Heaven, and we ought to be thankful for that and pray that that would remain the case. But perhaps you have seen something of yourself in what James has described this evening. It is very searching stuff, isn't it? And fairly devastating stuff too. How easy it is to quarrel and to fight with other Christians. How easy it is to want what we don't have and to trample, however middle class we might make it look, to trample on whoever gets between us and that thing. 
But you see, as we do that, says James, we aren't just setting ourselves against our brothers and sisters, bad though that would be. We're setting ourselves against the eternal God. And that is a very serious thing indeed. And yet, as I've said, the warnings in James are not meant to leave us despairing. They are meant to be just that. They're meant to be warnings. They're intended to call us back. The good news of Jesus is that if you have trusted in him, if you've trusted in his death in your place, he gives more grace. And so let me encourage you, if you do see something of yourself and what we've been thinking about together in James chapter 4, to be on your knees, asking him for that grace. And asking him for his help to continue day by day to submit to him, to walk humbly before him, wholeheartedly committed to him, not least in how we treat our brothers and sisters. And it is important that we're on our knees asking for his help to do that because we can't do it by ourselves. We need, as I've said, each step of the way through James, as we've studied it together, we need the help of his Holy Spirit to be more like him. And so as we close... Let me ask him for that help now. Let us pray together. Our God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for the truths of the letter of James. We praise you even for the sharp sting of conviction we feel as we examine our lives against this letter. Would you please help us where we do see our own double-mindedness to weep and to mourn over that, to repent of it. And we do thank you too for this reminder of the extraordinary love you have for your people. And that despite our failure to reciprocate that love as we ought, that you give more grace. And so we ask this evening, Lord, that you would please give us hearts that are singly devoted to you, absolutely submitted to you in every possible way, not least in how we love one another. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.